Good morning. Um, some of you know I have a, uh, a, most of the time it's a benign heart condition, um, but uh, I stay under a doctor's care, and I'm supposed to follow a, uh, a cardiac uh, health diet. And there's two rules to uh, a cardiac health diet. One is that if you can buy it by driving up to a window, you cannot have it. Two is, if, you, if it tastes good, spit it out. But I gotta tell you, Ron describing babe's chicken, I don't care. I cannot wait until homecoming and enjoying babe's chicken. That's gonna be a lot of fun. And, um, I will, you know, if I need to, I'll get a note from my doctor, you know. So, yesterday was the 20-year anniversary of uh, 9-11. And some of you were not alive at that time, but you probably have seen pictures, heard the accounts, um, heard testimonies. And particularly over the last week, we have been reminded of that day and what happened and how we were affected. I remember I was standing in the church office at First Methodist Church, Rowlett. I was making copies. And Alan Otto, who was the business manager there, he had a, <laughs> you're not gonna believe this, he had a 12-inch black and white television in his office and he would, he would just keep up with the news. And he began to shout my name. John, come here, John, hurry. As I walked in his door, the second plane hit the World Trade Center towers. Over the next hour or so, the rest of the staff began to gather in his office as we followed in disbelief the news stories, the collapse of the towers, the plane that went into the Pentagon the plane that went down in Pennsylvania. Some were crying on our staff. Others were checking on family. Some were going to pick up their children. It was late that morning that we gathered in the chapel of the church for prayer and to talk about next steps. At that moment, things began to change. we decided that we were going to have a worship service that night. That uh, we were going to gather together our most mature members in our church to be available for those who wanted to come to the church for prayer. That we would organize another group that would call all of our church members and those that we knew to see if they were okay. The church became, that afternoon, a beehive of activity. And fear began to turn, I mean, yes, and fear through faith began to turn to hope. In our love for each other, in our concern for each other, in our confidence in God, something happened to us that I will never forget. And, and here's, 
as I reflect on it and as I've reflected on it back then, the more concern that we had for each other, the less fear that we felt. Uh, Over the next uh, few days, um, we continued in that. We probably did more in in those days and in the, the weeks that were there around that uh, around that week because we had church members that were stranded here and there. Others were, were, were not knowing what to do with their jobs. We did more than what we had ever done in the history of that church. And the love that we shared cast out fear. There was no fear that was going to consume us. Uh, on the night uh, that we had the worship service, I preached from 1 Timothy chapter 1, in particular verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I wanted everyone, and we had, sanctuary was packed, the foyer was packed, we had overflow in the gymnasium. It was absolutely incredible how many people showed up that evening. As, as we worshiped together and sought God's grace and God's love and God's confidence and hope. I wanted everyone that would he- listen to know that through God's eternal love and presence, we could face anything. No matter what the next few days or weeks or months or even years would bring, we still have a future. We would and will love God, each other, and live in the confidence of God's love. Fear cannot take that away from us. Uh, A lot has happened since that day, and we've had other reasons to fear, particularly over the last two years. And, And I can still say to you that that the more we love, the more we seek to care for each other, the more, the less fear there will be. Perfect love casts out fear. And so today we continue to follow John's letter, probably written to the church at Ephesus, or at least to those churches that were surrounding Ephesus there in the, in, in the, uh, in, in the, greater area of Greek on the eastern Mediterranean. They had a lot of things they were dealing with. And John wanted them to hear, love conquers all. Love conquers all. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. May these words be your words, O God. Hide me behind the cross, O God, that every word that I speak would be yours. Every word that I misspeak, that you would fill in the gaps. Help me, O God, and us to hear your word this day. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Cindy read for you just a brief, small section of 1 John. We've kind of skipped forward a little bit from where we've been over the first two weeks of looking at 1 John into chapter 4. 
She began with verse 13, and really 13 and 14 and 15 are an introduction to verse 16, which is primarily the thesis for the whole letter. It is this. So we have known and believe that love, that the, the love that God has for us, God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. God loves us. We love God. Therefore, we love each other. Now, there's three things about these three, four verses that John is trying to get across to us. First is that love is the proof that God dwells in us. Love is the proof that God dwells in us. Now, some would say that, you know, doing the right thing, being the right person, acting the right way is the proof. Following the law is the proof. What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love neighbor as self. And all of the laws and the words of the prophets are contained in these words. It is proof. Verse 17, he then goes to the next of what he's trying to share with us. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as God is, so we are in this world. Love is the demonstration of the fact that we have been perfected in Christ Jesus. Now, um, there's, a, there's a word that we use in the church that's it's, it's kind of a $100 word. It's sanctification. And those who've been around the church have probably heard that word on several occasions, sanctification, sanctification. Um, it, you know, I, I went through seminary and didn't understand what sanctification was. It took me a while to understand. Sanctification is the ongoing growth of our faith in Jesus Christ, our love for God, and our love for each other. It simply means that day by day, as we live and work in faith, so we grow. Sanctification is not merely the absence of sin or ethical failures or moral stumbles. Sanctification is the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is a mindset. It is uh, speaking and living as the Spirit motivates. Now, um, you know, one of the things that we have to understand about sanctification is that it is not a once and for all experience. We, we are justified by faith. That is a once and and, and immediate, when we proclaim faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified by faith. But sanctification is the continuing growth. And, and what Paul, what John uses here is, is what's translated the word, we are perfected. Now, I don't know about any of you. Are any of you perfect? Let's see if I can. Um, Scott, or no, that's okay. Anybody? Uh, Mark? Close, yeah. Um, 
None of us are perfect. So if we're not perfect, then what's going on? That we are perfect, that we are perfected in love. Well, uh, the word translated, or the phrase translated perfected in love is the, is the phrase, hey, talia agape. Hey, talia agape. Which, um, which more fully means to be in the process of maturing, to be in the process of completion, that we have not yet obtained the goal, that we have not yet matured, but we are in the process. We are being perfected. It, it is the direction that we take in our lives to grow, to learn, to grow, to be, to seek, even if it costs us dearly. Now, this passage mentions judgment. It says, perfect love casts out fear, but it also speaks to the issue of judgment, that we are not to fear judgment. And, and, and there are the, some scholars that, that, that would say that this passage really is dealing with the fear of judgment only. Now, I, I would make the case that it goes farther than that, but let's deal with the issue of judgment for a minute. Let's, uh, let's ask the question, what, what does judgment do for us? Does it trigger our, um, our conduct? Um, what message does it give us in, in the process? What experience does, does judgment or the fear of judgment give to us? Does it make us more charitable? Does it make us more gracious or forgiving or loving? I would say no. Well, maybe. Fear's a pretty great motivator, isn't it? What's amazing is that judgment is the way the world sees the church. And it is the greatest misunderstanding about the church that is being perpetrated upon the church in our society today. That we are simply people who are judgmental, that we are rigid, that we are without, uh, without concern except for uh, determining what is right and wrong and who is going to hell and who is not. Frankly, none of this is our job. Yeah, thank goodness for that. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Or sir, or whatever the case. Anyway. Um, and, and here's, here's uh, I just want to share one quick story with you. Uh, an experiment was, was conducted by a professor who was concerned about this. He was a professor in religious studies in a college. He had 40 students in his class. He began to hear, hear comments from the students about God's judgment and and, and, and the effect that it had on their lives. And so he thought, you know, I'm going to see what happens here. And so what he did was he asked his students to write a one-page essay analyzing whether their lives have been shaped by the threat of law or the wonder of God's grace and love. Over 90% of the class 
admitted in their essays that God's disfavor or the threat of judgment had shaped their Christian outlook since childhood. God's unending love, God's grace, was barely mentioned. They were more worried about God's displeasure. They reported that Christianity was about following the rules. Now, I don't want to... uh, I don't want to disrespect the rules and disrespect the the boundaries of society because it it is what gives us direction and and gives us a, 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 a means by which we can relate to each other and practice our love. But if that's all we're if that's all we're worried about, then we have missed the point of what John is trying to share with us and the power of God's love and our love for each other. After the essays were written, this professor shared with them that, um, shared with them the primacy of God's grace and, and the primacy of God's love and forgiveness. And they were shocked. They said, well, one student even said, I have never heard this. He said, all of my life I've heard, if I don't act a certain way, I'm going to go to hell. Most all of the students came from strong evangelical churches and families. As I was reading the story, I thought to myself, is, I mean, I know that those outside of the church look at us that way. But is that what we believe? Have we missed the point? Is this why there is so much fear in our society and within the Christian community? Because we, have, <laughs> we do not see the, the, the absolute power and, and influence and what God's love can do. Not just in terms of eliminating our, our fear of judgment, but our fear of what is to come. One 20-year-old student said this. I feel like God punishes me for sin all the time. I feel that there is always something I'm being punished for. I know that it is impossible because there are not enough minutes in the day for God to punish me. Oh, man. I probably should not call it punishment, but that's the way I feel about God's judgment. I know of God's love and blessing for me And for that, I'm eternally grateful and thankful. But I live in fear that I might mess up. Who has stolen the good news of the gospel? Who has stolen it? (laughs) Here's what happened. This poor guy at this university. Word got around campus what he was doing with his class in terms of talking about love and talking about you know, the freedom of love. And so he was called before the faculty committee and chastised because do you know what you have done? He says, you have opened the door to the kids breaking all the rules. If they don't have any fear, then there's no telling what they'll do. 
And you know what he said? He said, if we but teach them how to love each other, we won't need the rules. Jesus said it this way when asked about the important, about the greatest laws. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love neighbor as self. And from that, everything comes. Now, what does this have to do with the fear that we felt on 9-11, the fear that we might feel with COVID-19, the fear that we might feel when, when a family member is in crisis, the fear that we might feel in, in the loss of a job or whatever life might bring us. When we have confidence with God and God's love for us and the all-consuming love for us, we look at our past differently. We look at our present differently. We look at our future differently. Now, I do want to say this about fear. Fear is a gift, okay? It's a gift from God. Um, fear is what keeps us from going through a, a hairpin turn at 100 miles an hour. Fear is what keeps a beginner skier from going down a black diamond slope. Fear is what keeps uh, a 190-pound kid from trying out for an NFL football team. You know, I mean, fear causes us to use judgment. But fear out of control is debilitating. For we have a future, no matter what this world may look like. We have a future, no matter what is happening to this body. We have a future, no matter what our, what our situation may be, because the love of God for us will lead us through all. Can you hear that? I mean, if we could but believe it. And what John says is, it's okay if you don't because we are still in process. Just take the next step. Take the next step of faith. Love a little more. Receive a little love. Let us not let fear paralyze us. For po perfect love cast out fear. Um, there's a scene in Charlie Brown's Christmas when Charlie Brown consults with the counselor Lucy. Have y'all seen Charlie Brown's Christmas? Can you remember this scene where he's sharing with her his anxieties and his fears, and she starts going through all the phobias? And he kind of goes, yeah, well, we're on, yeah. And finally, Lucy says, Charlie, you have pantophobia. Yeah, and that's what Charlie Brown said, huh? And Lucy said, that is a fear of everything. Okay, stop it. <laughs> okay. That is not who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. That is not who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. We have each other. 
We have a God who loves us. And I, and I said to somebody the other day, you know when God loves us most? When we are the most guilty. When we're the most guilty. Because God knows the pain of our guilt. Love conquers all. And, you know, I, I don't understand the ins and outs of life and how God works, but I do know that God works. Um, you may know the name Leslie Lemke. Um, probably 25 years ago, there were a lot of stories about Leslie Lemke. Um, he was born with severe cerebral palsy and brain damage. Um, the, the deformity was so bad in his eyes that his eyes had to be removed at three, at three, three days. The mother was told that it was doubtful that the child would live more than a few weeks, maybe a couple of months. And so she refused to take him home. They asked uh, Mary Lemke if she would, who was a nurse practitioner, if she would take care of the boy. And so she made the decision, and she said later that it was by the uh, direction of God for her to quit her job and to take care of Leslie full-time, literally 24-7. I, I mean, the boy had seizures on a regular basis. Uh, it was almost impossible to feed him because he... Uh, uh, he had trouble swallowing, so she would feed him with a, a, a dropper. After a year, the doctor said, well, he's made it a year, but we don't know how much longer, and then five years. But after five years, he couldn't even turn over in the crib. And the, and the seizures were terrible that he would have. And, and then one day, Mary realized that when there was music playing, particularly a piano, that he would relax and there'd be no seizures. And so she bought a piano and she, she would play in the afternoons and whenever he would really go into the seizure kind of uh, uh, syndrome and she would put his hands on the keys and she would play and he would relax. Every night before he went to bed, she would put his hands on the keys and, and, and she would play. She would she had taped music that, uh, of, of pianos and other kinds of music that she would play so that he would go to sleep. After his 10-year birthday, he was able to roll over and to do a few minor things, but he could not stand. It was two years later that he would stand at 12. When he got to where he could stand, she uh, took him out in the front yard, and she would take his hands and put them on the picket fence that she had in the front yard, and she would have him, she would literally do it for him, move from one picket to another to help him with his muscle coordination. And then he would have the seizure, and she would take him back inside. She would settle him down and bring him out over and over and over again. Later, she would say that she just loved him. She just loved him. At 15, he learned how to walk on his own. Now, uh, because of the brain damage and the, and the palsy, he showed no emotions. Um, he uh, could follow a few basic instructions, but um, 
other than the music, there was very little that, uh, that he responded to. One night, Mary Lemke tells the story of, of a program that they found on television, Liberace playing the piano. And, and so they, they had Leslie in there and, and they, they were playing the, and, and Leslie relaxed. She took him in and played the piano with him and then put him to bed with his usual music. Later, she was awakened by piano music. And she thought to herself, and she nudged her husband who was asleep. She said, you've left the TV on. And he just rolled over. And so she begrudgingly got out of bed, made her way into the den that was dark. There was no TV on. When she turned on the light, Leslie was sitting at the piano playing the music that he had heard from Liberace. Now, you, you may have seen him. Um, he was on some late night shows and some other things because it was quite incredible. He could hear a piece of music and then play it. This night, though, was different. She was so shocked. And <laughs> she put her arms around him and she just said over and over again, Leslie, I love you. Leslie, I love you. I know you can hear me. I know you can understand me. I love you. I love you. And God has brought us together. And she looked and tears began to come down his face the first time he showed emotion. He continued to play. And then he shifted to another song. And the next miracle took place. He began to sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear The hour I first believed When we've been there ten thousand Bright shining as the sun, we've known. 